Welcome to the Tenkara Angler Level Line Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Agnetta, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode. I've got quite a few folks joining me tonight. I'll kind of go around the horn and introduce you to them. First, we got Matt Smith. How's it going, Matt? Good. Great to be here. Good to see you all. Awesome to have you. We got Anthony Naples. Greetings, folks. Good to be back. And we have Tom Davis. Howdy, everybody. Well, I'm going to kind of start off tonight's episode. I'll kind of I, what, what I wanted to do is I know with the turn of the new year, um, a lot of people are kind of putting together their fishing calendars. And there's a lot of things going on in our, you know, Tenkara community. And I'll be honest with you, I'm behind on getting this pulled together for our website. So I thought we'd kind of take this opportunity to run through some of the kind of upcoming events if you want to plan your Tenkara activities around meeting up with people and fishing with folks that, you know, you might have only talked to online. So I kind of jotted down a list of some events, and um, I know some of you guys have attended some of these. So as I go through them and you have something to add or, or note, you know, feel free to jump in with, with any of your thoughts. Um, the first one, um, and this isn't really a necessarily a fishing event where you actually go fishing, but it's the, uh, the fly fishing show where it's basically the annual event convention, whatever you call it, where, you know, most of the fly fishing brands attend and they kind of have tables full of, you know, all their latest and greatest and fortunate for us, you know, Tenkara brands attend this as well. Um, I had the pleasure of attending last year. Tom, I know you went to the same one I did in Atlanta. And, you know, brands like Dragon Tail and Zentankara and Tanuki were all there. So, yep. you know, you not only get to handle the rods, but you get to meet some of the some of the folks that run the companies, too, which is a really cool experience. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I actually think that's the highlight of going to the show. It's great to see the gear, but I love meeting the people. Yeah. So it, it's a great opportunity if you have one coming in your area. And Tenkara is one of those sports where you don't necessarily get to try out a lot of the rods in person before you buy them. It is a good opportunity to kind of get your hands on one and, and see what see what it looks like in person. Um, I know they've already had one in Massachusetts, in Denver. Um, we're recording this, um, you know, kind of in the back half of January. So I think the one in New Jersey is coming up next. As I mentioned, um, there's one in Atlanta, I think Washington State, California, and then the schedule you know closes up in um, in Pennsylvania in March. Um, the next one, I guess, is this is kind of a couple unofficial events going on in the in the tank car community. Um, the first one that I wanted to mention is the um, the San Juan uh, takeover, which is actually being hosted by the um, the Tenkara Fisher, I guess, Facebook group, Adam Trahan. Um, who leads that is, uh, you know, going to, um, you know, attend that. I think he actually has Jason Class from Tenkara Talk kind of yeah. co-leading that um, event yeah. with him. Yeah, and that's tailwater Tenkara fishing, if I'm not mistaken. I've never fished the San Juan. Have any of you guys ever fished the San Juan? Never have. No, no. but it, it, it should be a cool opportunity if you are in, you know, kind of the Southwest, um, you know, to check out and meet up with some people. Like I said, it's very unofficial. There's not like registration or anything like that. But if you go to the Tenkara uh, Fishers, I think Facebook group. You'll probably find some information on that. I think it's uh, their their part of their emphasis is it's big open water with big fish, and so they're going to use you know long lines and lo big long rods and and uh, teeny tiny little flies. <laughs> tiny flies, right? Right. 
And if, if I didn't mention, I think it's the weekend of March 8th to 9th, if you're, you know, penciling something in um, in your calendar. Um, next up, you know, is something that we've mentioned on Tenkara Angler before and in this podcast, honestly. It's our Oni Tenkara Immersive, which we're holding the weekend of April 5th and 6th. Uh, Matt's actually kind of running that with Rob Worthing of Tenkara Guides, and it's a great opportunity to you know, basically learn Oni style Tenkara, um, you know, in, in the United States. It's the first time it's been on the East coast, right, Matt? So, um, it's a really great opportunity. Yeah. This is the first time, uh, that we've put together one of these schools. I know Rob has done some, uh, some classes here and there at various events, uh, but definitely the first time we've put together one of these immersives that we've been doing for a couple of years now. Uh, so we're really excited to be bringing it to a whole new audience and uh, hopefully bringing it to the East Coast, making it more convenient for people who haven't been able to uh, join us before to to jump in. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's located um, at Lake Logan, North Carolina. It is an event that you have to register and there is a registration fee. It's not just one that you can attend for free, um, but you're going to be getting, you know, two days of, you know, dedicated instruction on some really, really great private water. So it's, it's something we'd recommend you check out. I think we have, we have about six or seven people registered so far, and there's a couple slots open. So if it's something that's interested, interesting to you, you know, check out the website, uh, you know, for that link. After that, there's a couple other ones just to kind of run through them real quick. They're in April 25th to 28th um, on the Davidson River in Brevard, North Carolina. There's an unofficial campout um, held for the, um, the Appalachian Tankara Anglers um, Facebook group. Um, it's, not necessarily like the Tenkara camp that Tenkara Angler had. It's very unofficial, but, you know, it's an opportunity if you live in Western North Carolina to meet up with some anglers. Um, after that, there's a similar event um, in Wisconsin. We've talked about this on our on our um, website and podcast before. It's the Wisconsin Tenkara Campout, and that's the weekend of Friday, May 17th. I know most of us have been to that before. Anthony loves the Driftless. What's so great about the Driftless, Anthony? Um, it'll make you feel like you know what you're doing, I think. <laughs> it's some really good fishing. Um, so so that, that, that is in, um, what is, I guess that's what, southwestern um, Wisconsin um, in the middle of May. And then the last one that I wanted to just plug real quick is the one that Redbrook Tenkara puts on, the White Mountains Tenkara Campout, um, the weekend of June 7th to 9th. Um, in Gorham, New Hampshire. Um, like I mentioned, Redbrook puts that on. Um, it gets some really good support, not only from attendees, but from sponsors. Usually Dragon Tail donates some things in addition to what Redbrook has for, you know, raffles. I think Tinkara Rod Company and Yona have in the, in the past as well. And, um, you know, our own Amanda Hoffner is going to be there. Um, and we've been talking about, a couple of us have been talking about going as well. So it seems like there's going to be a good Tinkara angler presence um, at the event as well. Uh, Matt, you're looking at shooting up to that one, right? Absolutely. Uh, that's uh, the uh, the last stop on uh, what should be the next five months of uh, travel for me. Uh, but I'm pretty excited about getting up there. I haven't been uh, to New Hampshire in 26-ish years now, uh, and I loved it. Uh, last time I was there, I'm sure nothing has changed in almost 30 years, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing place. And I'm very excited to get up there again and uh, even more excited to be, uh, you know, checking out the event and, and uh, meeting all the East Coast people that uh, I rarely get a chance to spend time with. 
Yeah, yeah. That one's been really well received. It is, again, one that you need to register for. So check out the Red Brook Tenkara website if you're interested in that. So, you know, those events that I just mentioned kind of take you all the way from, you know, right now, call it late January, all the way out to June. Um, if there's any events that I miss, um, you know, let us know at Tenkara Angler. Let us know in the comments of this video. and We can get it added to the calendar. Um, and, you know, doing an event isn't hard to just, you know, basically name a time and place. And what I found over the years is motivated tankara anglers will come because they just want to fish and hang out with friends so um that's kind of my roundup on the calendar uh matt you had a, a topic to talk about next if i'm not mistaken uh yeah you know such so since uh, the weather has been so uh sunny and warm and pleasant and just fishy you know make you want to get outside uh, across most of the united <laughs> states for the last couple of weeks i figured we'd discuss uh cold and miserable weather and officially kind of how that affects uh our own individual fishing like how cold uh will you put up with how cold and miserable will you allow yourself to get in order to continue catching fish uh let's start with with tom um i'll probably fish i usually will fish down to about uh, when the air temperature is about Oh, 28, 29 degrees Fahrenheit, um, because the microclimate against the water that I fish usually is then at least slightly at or above freezing. I used to, you know, I used to be crazy and uh, fish down to 20 degrees, even maybe in the high teens. <clears throat> and I didn't find it to put the fish off. I mean, I caught a lot of fish at that time. Uh, many of my videos, um, are from winters that were those temperatures but uh it wasn't fun um and uh and i as i have moved along in uh, tankara i've tried to become a little bit well a lot more mindful of what the fish is going through <laughs> and uh yeah. um you know over the over the last um couple of years i I've been trying to concentrate on not even lifting them out of the water because I catch I don't catch big fish. I'm not like Brent Auger who catches big fish or you know I, I all my fish are small and so I I can use a hook degorger and, and take them off. So at least I feel better that they're in the water. Um, but you know your ice lines up and you can use that Stanley's ice off paste or chapstick or anything else to try to help your line from icing it's going to ice up. And uh, so nowadays I will, if it's looks like the high of the day, isn't going to get above 28 to 30. No, I, I do something else. So fair enough. Well, I was going to say, I don't mind if it's snowing, um, but uh, I do mind if it's blowing. Um, and, oh, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, so it, it can snow. That's just fine. But if it, if it, if I get a, a breeze above about, uh, I don't know, eight miles an hour, you know, with gusts above that. It's not very fast, but I'm, I'm a wimp nowadays, and I, I just won't go. So. You can date it. My, uh, my capacity for recreational misery goes down every year. <laughs> yeah. Every year. Another trip around the sun. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So Anthony, what about you? What's your uh, what are what are your borders uh, with t temperatures and conditions? Um, yeah, I mean, kind of like like you mentioned, Matt. Like when when I was younger, like I would go out all winter long. You know, like I remember be being out in like you know 
it was like zero degrees and you know i remember fishing one time and i'm fishing this is before tankara angling but i was fishing and you know and i i go to like check my fly and it's just a, an ice cube you know like there's the, there's no like you know mm -hmm. um but like I, I think what happened to you know i was going to school penn state so i would fish i was up there and i could get to streams easily and fish and those limestone streams can fish well all through the winter you know because they're like regulated the temperatures aren't going to get so cold so the fishing can be a, can be pretty good um but once i moved back to pittsburgh um you know in the winter i had to go up and over you know the the ridges of the appalachians to get there and it's it's always bad you know and so i would do that for a while and then when i had kids i started thinking like is it worth risking my life you know to go fishing and so that's kind of when it really tapered off because i just felt it felt ridiculous to to risk my life you know to go fishing um but now that I've, I've got a place up there um you know i've i've done a little more fishing this winter and I'm, i plan to do more um but it, you know in pennsylvania and, and mike knows that like we don't get that deep freeze you know i mean it's right. like it's warm and it's cold and you know so we've got plenty of opportunity to get out in the winter when it's not super cold so i'm not going to torture myself you know and when it's really cold and and i think too like it, it, i don't know if it, it's like as you get older like i went out last year a lot when it was colder and like i really hurt my ankle and i think you're just you know you're stiffer and you're just you know um so i just think physically for me it's like it's hard you know i took a big fall um and then like if you know my ankle's kind of bummed so i don't want to like take you know like i fall a lot more than i used to i'm not interested in falling in the river when it's you know 20 degrees out yeah. Um, but yeah i mean so so it's kind of a bummer but like you know, when I, I lived in Maine for a while and I would go out, you know, I'm fishing off of an ice shelf and things like that. And But yeah, I think when you get older, yeah, you just kind of, I, I don't know, like wise up. <laughs> Have any of you guys ever seen, seen the videos on YouTube or social media where people are fishing on top? of like ice flows going down the river those people are nuts man yeah i i, I that crazy. can't be safe i don't know how you i mean i guess you get on and break it off i don't even know how they get on those but um that always cracks me up whenever i see those every winter yeah no so i'm, I'm not i'm not real you know i've kind of got gotten you know softer as i got older i guess but um but you know like the limestone streams offer a lot of fishing so if i'm up there and it's in mm -hmm. the, even in the 20s like high 20s that's not too bad you know if it's sunny but yeah like you say if it's windy and stuff forget it but um yeah, yeah. and then as far mm -hmm. as like changing up gear if i am going to go out in the winter time you know like um i i don't i don't you know i i've got like some cutoff fleece you know fingerless gloves that i use and i've like i use the fleece ones because i can wring them out when they're if they get wet it seems to work pretty well if you're looking for something um like i found that to be pretty good and i, I tried using those blue gloves the nitrile gloves but i kept ripping them you know so exactly yep. you know I, I don't have too much luck with those but um and then i just do an underlayer like i have like silk you know long underwear that i wear and I, and the biggest thing for me is a uh, is a gator like if, I, if my neck is warm you know like so i wear like a, a neck gator and stuff i'm gonna be out there in the cold i just got a pair of um of new generation electronic uh, heating socks um okay. you know i got i had some of the old ones where you had put a couple um d batteries in you know so you're walking around with these d batteries attached to your calves <laughs> you don't fit in your waders very well and the cords the heating cords across your the, were on the balls of your feet oh. and so all you can feel is these 
wires when you're walking around, you know, in the ice. But I just got a pair um, a month ago, about the time I did that one article, and they've got these rechargeable batteries, and uh, I've been impressed so far. <laughs> I've been impressed. They have, they all have micro wires now, so they feel and they stretch just like socks, but you don't have anything that gets in the way of your tactile sense for the stream bottom. So that's cool. So far, so far, uh, uh, they're good. I'll, you know, I'll see how they go for the rest of the winter. Nice. Are they lithium. like USB rechargeable? Like how how do they yeah. charge? Yeah. Yeah, they're lithium ion, so I might burst yeah. into flames in the <laughs> middle of the stream. But, <laughs> but they're they're USB chargeable. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So, Mike, what are your limits? Oh, the, uh, uh, well, I, I live in Florida, so you know, once I can't wear a tank top and shorts, <laughs> I'm I'm not going outside and fishing. Well, um, fair enough. That. No, ser seriously. So. You know, I don't really have limits. I, I, I'm more concerned about the condensation than I am the cold. And I don't really have the snow issues in the south that, you know, you might have in Wisconsin or anybody up in the northeast. I just don't like being rain, being rainy and cold and wet. So, you know, I usually, which can be difficult in the beginning of the spring when you do get a lot of rain and you're like really itching to get out and fishing. But, you know, there's just a lot of rain. So, um, you know, what I typically do is I'll wait I, I, number one, I don't go fishing in the morning. I wait until it warms up to, you know, be 11 o'clock or noon or something like that. I'm not, the fish are cold. They're not going to be active. I'm not going out at eight, eight in the morning or anything like that. Exactly. Mike Lutz and I call that the gentleman's start. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. 11 ish a.m. Yeah. Um, and in the winter, if we're going to fish, you know, I, I'll save it for my time too. But if we're going to fish, like, what, 11's really the earliest we'd even consider right. hitting the water. Right. Uh, and then the other thing I, like I said, I consider is the precipitation. So I have to drive a little bit to get to trout water at least. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I make sure that it's, a, if it's going to go over a weekend, it's a dry weekend. I really don't want to be dealing with, you know, being drenched and cold and all that. I don't mind the cold itself. I can wear layers and all that stuff, but I just don't want to be wet and cold. I just did not for me. I don't, I don't like that stuff. Um, and then, and then you know, as far what Vortex says, yeah, um, you're still wet on the inside. I mean, 100%. I don't know what they say, it's just not fun. Yeah, and th and then as far as gear goes, I mean, when it is cold, like if it's in the 30s or even you know 40s, which you know it's all relative, it's a sliding scale. You know, I you know I do fish those boring nymphs. Um, it, you know, in those conditions, um, you know, I'm not out there manipulating. You know kabari or anything like that i save that for later in the spring when the fish are a little bit more active um mm -hmm. you know if i have a driving five or six hours to go fishing i want to catch fish so you know i usually do the thing that that works and then if i get enough of them and i want to mess around with a kabari whether it has a beat mm -hmm. or not on it then i'll then i'll make that transition but um it was funny when anthony was telling his story it kind of made me think of a time back when i lived in pennsylvania i lived near a freestone stream that got stocked every winter and they, they'd stock it around black friday and then you know we never really anything said we never really got a ton of chills but it was a really cold winter and that stream did freeze over and i probably went out five or six times because of this one hole where the glass the, the ice was kind of translucent <laughs> and there was one of those orange palomino trout 
just like kind of circling in that pool and you could see it through the ice, but you couldn't quite get there. So I kept going back every way, every, every weekend or whatever, waiting for that ice to crack or break or recede or whatever. And somebody must've got him before me because one weekend I went, he was gone. But um, yeah, so I guess it's, it's precipitation nymphs and the allure of, um, you know, the Pennsylvania golden trout, we'll call it. So there you go. Well, from my point of view, you know, I, I used to be pretty comfortable with going out uh, when it was, you know, I, I would go as long as the wind isn't too bad. You know, as Tom mentioned, that's really the the killer for me. Uh, as long as the wind's not too bad, I would go out uh, down to about 20. And uh, as Anthony also mentioned, I think Tom said, too, like, you know, the fish didn't seem to care. You know, I, I was, I was, you know, usually fish in Iowa. Uh, which is mostly stockers, uh, but still, you know, like I would still catch a decent amount of, especially on a, a colder, sunnier day, mm-hmm. uh, they would really be turned on. But uh, yeah, it comes down to how much, you know, like how long do you want to lose feeling in your fingertips? And, uh, you know, the last time I went out uh, fishing was uh, probably about six weeks ago. It was a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, but it was. Uh, we had a, a cold snap, and it was pretty decently cold. And my old pair of waders, both of the both of them were leaking, so my feet were wet the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I was standing there thinking, you know, like, okay, I know I can, I can handle this level of misery. But then what popped into my head was I had recently seen a picture of the worst case of trench foot that I had ever seen. And I'm like, you know, it only takes like four or five hours of like the right conditions to be like kicking that trench foot stuff in. And, you know, I guess this is, you know, the older and wiser stuff versus the younger uh, invincible thinking of I can take it. Everything's going to be okay. Right. Uh, But the reality is like, even if I'm standing there taking it, I could be like incurring a serious, serious injury. Uh, yeah, I mean that, that that's true. I mean that's what that's what I did to my ankle. Like I was out in the winter and I think I I, I got so cold that I just didn't realize what was going on, you know, and it like mm-hmm. flared up you know a sp- an old sprain that I had had and it's been like going on 2 years now and it's still pretty bad, you know. Oh, so good. Yeah, so uh, you know that and and I get like I don't know if this happened to you guys like when I we used to go steelheading and it'd be really cold like i would um and i must deal with like the the cold feet i'll get like the plantar fasciitis really bad yeah. mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. so like yeah. that's no fun either <laughs> and i think anthony you mentioned lunch that uh um you definitely don't walk backwards um when you're yeah. <laughs> you know, i think that's all of us don't 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 even think about it turn around and walk forward don't take a step backwards you go down you'll go down yeah well, that brings me to a point. Something uh, worth sharing here is that, like, our decision-making uh, capabilities start to degrade uh, at, at about forty degrees, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit higher probably than most people think. And so, like, that—that's that's yet another potential hazard of cold. Is like you may be physical comfortably and everything, uh, physically comfortable and everything. Uh, and be, you know, start making st- making decisions that are impaired, yeah. uh, you know, that 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 end up generating additional danger and risk for you. Uh, so there's there's a lot to manage in, in cold. And as as Mike brought up, what it comes down to is a, you know, what we're constantly doing with our bodies is managing heat and moisture. And 
it becomes very challenging in the winter. Like, I don't know about you guys, but when I bundle up to fish in the winter, I often have like an overheating problem. Yeah. Sure. You yeah. Know, I, I end up with everything unzipped underneath and, you know, like it's hard to find that middle ground, but it's that constant battle of maintaining the, you know, heat and moisture uh, with your gear and with the conditions and everything. And it really does add a challenge level. And I think we ought to, we ought to just acknowledge that it's okay to not catch the fish. They need a time to rest <laughs> and recover too. Um, you know, and, you know, Tankara, but when I, when I first started getting into it in, in uh, 2012, it was winter. And um, prior to that, I had been fishing the certain streams and, you know, frustrated with frozen guides and, you know, crystallized fly line and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden I get this rod that has no guides and right. I can use a level line, which is, you know, a, you know, doesn't ice up as fast. And I thought, wow, I can fish all year round. Well, you know, maybe morally there are times to just let the fish rest. Um, so, yeah. and you know, nowadays maybe that's the way I try to look at it. Okay, I'll give them a day off. You know, you know, like I'm some <laughs> like I'm some great or something. My <laughs> favorite. <laughs> right on. Well, that was some that was some good stuff, guys. Are you ready to uh, do the over underrated thing? Oh, absolutely! Can't wait. Okay, uh, so uh, I'm going to start with with Mike because uh, he's on my left, and just move across. I don't know how things are arranged on y'all's screen, but the first one here is uh, is fishing gloves. Overrated or underrated? Oh, so it, it's it's a good topic you bring up, just because we talked about cold, right? So I I. Look at you, man. Nice segue. Um, I'm going <laughs> I'm going to say, and this might be contra, I'm going to say overrated. So I don't wear fishing gloves. I've never worn fishing gloves. Actually, I take that back. I I wear tropical fishing gloves, but not cold weather fishing gloves. You know, that skin cancer on the back of your hand or whatever is serious. So maybe I'll, I'll stay with overrated. I don't wear them in the wintertime. I will try my best to keep my hands dry, which can be a challenge, um, especially when you're handling fish or you get something in the water. But I try to do, I bought one of those catch them tools to kind of like, you know, release the hook without touching the fish. So in the winters, I try to keep my hands out of the water, release the fish. And if I need to put my hands, I'll put them in the pocket or whatever, but I don't use fishing gloves. Right on. Tom, fishing gloves, overrated or underrated? Overrated. Um, I have used all different types. Um, I even have an article on Teton Tankar from way back when I was stupid. Um, and I have some lobster claw diving gloves. You know, the thick neoprene ones, lobster claw. Nice. Talked about desperate to generate um, content for my blog. Anyway, I don't care what you're wearing. Your fingers are going to get cold. Right. And uh, it, and it's all relative, like I said, it's all relative. Um, but for me, and the in the West, and the the dry cold, um, the temperatures get a little bit of breeze. I I've tried every combination, whatever, and they can say whatever they want in their advertisement. And uh, I understand it's better than maybe bare skin, but your fingers are still going to get cold. I think they're overrated. I don't think that. You get anything perfect now. Nowadays, again, they've got these gloves that are now heated, and I have yet to try those, but they're not really fishing gloves. So, fair enough, Anthony. 
Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't really have my finger on the pulse of fishing glove opinion. So it's hard for me to decide whether they're over or underrated, but I will say that maybe they're, they're just rated. Well, I don't know. I use, I have a pair of, there were Sims, uh, they're fleece, you know, polar fleece with yeah. the finger, you know, fingertips cut out. And, mm -hmm. um, and for me, it's not a, a matter of the finger so yeah, much as the back of my over. hands. No, they don't flip over. It's just, just the fingers. Yeah. And my yep. fingertips are fine, you know, like, but if the back of my hand gets cold, then I lose all, right. I can't use my fingers, you know? Yeah. So, so I need, like, I need something on the top of my hand. And when it's really cold, I'll put, it's, they're convenient to hold some hand warmers. I'll put hand, you know, when I used to oh, go sure. out steelheading, I'd put hand warmers on the top of them actually to mm -hmm. hold them there. But, um, and they get wet, but it seems like once they get wet, you know, it's kind of like, um, it, the water heats up in the gloves anyway. It's not so bad, you know, and you can kind of wring them out. They're soaked. I just, when we were out at the farm show last winter, I bought a pair. They were these fingerless alpaca gloves and the lady mm -hmm. that was selling them said her husband uses them for fishing. So I, just, I haven't had a chance to, I've worn them a couple times, but they haven't gotten wet. So I don't know like, you know, yeah. how they deal with the moisture, but um, they're nice and warm, you know? Um, but yeah, so I, I use them. And uh, like, but I've tried other ones where, yeah, the flip over ones, or I had like ones with some of the fingers were like different combinations of fingers mm -hmm. exposed and not exposed. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just the fingerless, you know, like hobo gloves yeah. that work for me. You know, I always end up taking them off, you know, like, I'll, you know, right. bring it around to me. I'll, I'll say overrated because like, I always end up I, taking them off. I don't like the loss of dexterity. 100%. And, uh, I don't like, uh, I definitely don't like having them on when I'm handling a fish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that to me feels like it's, maybe I'm being, you know, too paranoid about the, the mucus layers and all that, but that feels like maybe a little bit more contact than I should have. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if my hands get cold, I'll, I'll stop fishing, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of dry them off and, and take a couple minutes to warm up and stuff before I move on. Uh, his dry is really the the big deal. Yeah, um, hey, and uh, it, as long as it's uh, not super windy, which if it is, I'm not going to be out there as we've discussed. <laughs> right, right. At the risk of going down a rabbit hole, I'm just curious. Have any of you guys tried like latex gloves? I see that a lot. Like you know, like the food prep or like the yeah. surgical gloves or whatever. I, I've I've never had that. I'm just curious what I've, your thoughts are on I've those. I've, I've, the nitrile. Yeah, I I've, yeah. I've tried the the nitrile gloves, like the blue yeah. ones. Mm -hmm. Like because my daughter. She goes at the at the farm at the horse farm. All the girls wear them under their other gloves, and it keeps you super warm. But like, so I tried them, and my problem was that I just kept ripping them. You know, I would I would tear them. You need at least five mil instead of the three mil. Um, I've used latex surgical gloves. You know, from my profession, I've used uh, the nitrile gloves. Um, the problem with them. Um, th they make a great vapor barrier. That's essentially what it is, is vapor barrier technology. So it, you, you can get your hand wet, and essentially, obviously, they're impervious, so mm -hmm. they're not wet from the stream. But your hands will start to sweat. Like all vapor barrier products, you're going to sweat. And right. depending on how long you're out there, you know, winter fishing, winter fishing, in my opinion, uh, the main difference between winter fishing for me and summer fishing is the duration I'm on the water. If I manage the time that I'm out there, I can actually be relatively comfortable. But I'm not out there in the water that long compared yeah. to summer. You know, your summer, you're out there. You might be out there many 
consecutive hours. But winter fishing, if you if you play it right, you can wear nitrile gloves underneath your gloves or fingerless gloves, and you can be relatively comfortable. But it's all relative. Okay, so the next one, uh, and I'll start with Anthony and move back across. Uh, so Anthony, overrated or underrated? Knowing the Japanese words for te specific techniques. <laughs> oh, this is like a this is like a trigger for me, Matt. I don't know if you know that or not. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm for whatever reason. I I don't know if it's my ADHD brain or the the kind of um, thinker I am, but jargon. I hate jargon of any kind. Like whatever. If I'm in a hobby and people like have these arcane terms that you it just really bugs me like that just really bugs me it does not 10 car specific you know and mm -hmm. and and so so i yeah oh, i'm gonna say overrated but you know i, I the caveat is i understand <laughs> if you if you're if you have to instruct someone it's good to have some terminology you know so i'll allow that but for me personally um i i don't I, I think overrated, and also I, I, have, I'm, I'm, I have a list right here. This has a bunch of Japanese manipulation terms on it right here. And the, the other problem I have with it is I don't feel like I own that information. Like I feel like I've heard it secondhand from other people. I've never, I've never been to Japan, and I don't, I don't have a. I don't feel like I have like not permission to use it, but. Do you know what I mean? I just don't feel like I have ownership of those terms. So yeah, like, uh, are you sitting in the proper context to be able to uh, speak on that term with authority? Right. Ex exactly. Yeah. yeah. I I don't feel like I have the authority to 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 use a lot of that. And so yeah, I'll just say like, swing the fly or pull it or whatever. You know. Um, yeah. So. Okay. Tom, you're you're second again here because they're in the middle. Underrated or overrated? I'm going to be a second witness to what Anthony said. I, I think for me, in a casual conversation among friends, it's overrated. Don't use the words. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a white guy. I I can't even say the word salsa with any respect. You know, I mean, that's not or or in the south, I don't say y'all because I'm not a y'all person or all y'all. I mean, that that's not my culture. <laughs> I have no authority to do that. Um, if you're trying to teach somebody or it's in a, uh, a well-written educational document like what Discover Tenkara has, um, you know, learning the, uh, under their learning Tenkara, I think it's great. I think it's great. But I can't say these uh, words with any authority. So I just, okay, I'm going to, you know, try to manipulate the fly. So right on. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that it gets to like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, like a problem, not a problem, but it's a thing with me, not with the terms. Do you know what I mean? Like, and like, yeah, yeah, like, right. yeah I it's feel like, like, a, like I'm a, um, um, I'm trying to pull the wool over somebody else's eye. Right. Like, I'm, I'm smart, you know, and that's exactly, thing. yeah. And everybody knows I'm not smart, so Mike, yes, underrated um, or overrated, knowing the Japanese words for techniques. I'll I'll be the contrarian. I'll say underrated. Um, not only because they boasted overrated, but I mean, let's face it. Like we don't even say the word tankara right in America, and we say it all the time because we're describing the the style of fishing that we like to do, right? So I think you know you both hit on it. So I'm not going to like beat a dead horse, but I think there is a benefit 
to having a term that can be commonly understood. And the fact that we're lazy Americans and don't want to learn how to say it or what it means is on us, the reflection on us, not the Japanese language or the terms themselves, right? Like they've created these terms to describe a specific technique of fishing. You know, we should at least try to learn that and understand what it means. So you, when you do converse, you know, you, everybody is speaking a common language, even if it is a foreign one. So I'll say underrated. Okay. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to say overrated because everybody should know exactly what I mean when I say do the little tappy sideways thing. <laughs> Or no, you guys have brought up a, a, a great point as far as like the uh, the need for an operable language uh, in any sort of body of knowledge. You know, Kintara is not different uh, from anything else, but uh, I, I think it uh, it definitely serves as a uh, as a tool of discussion. Uh, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary because like every time I every time I learn slash i'm able to retain the name of uh a, a technique in japanese it's it's basically it's like, like pon pon okay i mean it's it's tapping okay like you know like it's 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 there's uh i think a lot of the terms are just the japanese words for things that we would say like they're just yeah, descript man, they're I, descriptive, I it, they're know, descriptive like, terms yeah 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 so I, I think what's important is uh, I don't know being flexible on the word itself, but being really focused on the the meanings and the the sure. understanding the uh, the ideas behind them. Yeah, I yeah, and I I would add like like with I don't know how about how you guys fish, but I don't fish and I don't think to myself I'm gonna do a I'm gonna do B. Mm -hmm. I just I cast out and I do different things as uh, in in the same drift or what as needed and i don't i don't think about them as i don't think about these manipulations so much as discrete things you know um while i'm doing them you know you know what i mean yeah absolutely i don't, I don't break it down that way so um I, I don't know maybe maybe people do i mean i was just reading i was actually just reading um the the Tenkar usa book daniel's book about some of the stuff and it was kind of interesting because it was not in the way that uh, the way he described some of the things were, was not in the way that I understood it, you know, um, which is not to say he's right or wrong or, or whatever, but it was just different than I understood it anyway. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, for sure. instance, when he talked about, um, uh, say, like uh, pulsing the fly or pulling the fly, he talked about it being very rhythmic and not erratic. And I thought, well, geez, like I always do it very erratically, you know, so it was, it was just kind of interesting. So, you know, even though I think I may understand the terms, it gets kind of gets back to that where I'm not even sure that I, I do completely know what the term means in the Jap you know, in the Japanese context, uh, you know? So. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. All right, guys, last one real quick. So we'll start with Tom this time. Uh, overrated, underrated. Perdigod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th thanks. Thanks for that one. <laughs> But like I said, you know, something something I said earlier about throwing gasoline on the fire. Uh, um, as far as as far as a um, an art form in tying, overrated. Um, they're just psychedelic popsicles. As far as fish catching flies, um, they're underrated. They catch like they they catch fish. I don't know why they do, but man, 
they catch fish. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't look at them as an art form in any way, um, but uh, they are highly effective and very productive. All right, Mike. Um, I'll say, I'll say overrated. Um, not that there's anything wrong with them. Um, I just, you know, I, when I, when I hear Euro nymphing, nymphing, stuff like that, they're one of the few patterns that I always hear come up first. Right. And like, there's got, like, I, I don't Euro nymph or anything like that. You know, like, like a hardcore, like, you know, like I'll, I'll tie a nymph on the end of my 10 car ride and rod and do that. But like, there's gotta be more patterns than Pertagon and you know, whatever, what's the rainbow warrior. I don't, I don't even know what they all are. Right. But like, I feel like there's like three or four patterns that are repeated all the time. And that one is always at the top of the list. So for that reason only, I'll say overrated. Fair enough. And Anthony, um, I'm going to say overrated. And the, the reason I'm going to say that is like, like Tom says, I mean, they obviously catch fish, like no doubt about it. But um, I think that uh, like, if you, if you really dig into it, um, you, you know, the Pertagon serves a particular purpose. Like it, it has a niche that it works in. It sinks quickly, you know, through the water column because it's slim and it has no, like, there's very little resistance. Right. Um, so if you're just, if you just go and buy a bunch of Pertagons just because you think they're magic, they may not work for what you're using them for. Sure. You know, so like I'm fishing a lot of shallow edges and if I use Pertagons, they sink to the bottom and it doesn't do me any good. I need a fly that that doesn't sink so quickly. Um, so, so for that reason, I think they're over, if you're just using it like as a cookie cutter solution off the shelf without understanding how they're functioning in the water, then I think they're overrated in that way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, I have some in my box, but, uh, I've only ever put them on kind of randomly as like, I just don't do a lot of nymphing uh, except when I have to, you know, Tom and I are similar in that regard. I think we nymph when we're forced to by weather and circumstances, uh, but I cannot deny uh, the level of skill uh, and, and fish production uh, involved, you know, like God, Anthony, it's obscene how much fish you catch when you're, when you're on. And I mean, you're like, like sometimes I think there ought to be a law, like uh, so. I mean, they, they they absolutely work. You know those those little nymphs and stuff. It's just uh, as Tom recently brought up in his now legendary controversial essay. Uh, you know, to me, it's it, it's not the experience I'm looking for, but that doesn't mean it's not a a massively effective tool. And they just look cool. Yeah, they look cool, and they feel really cool when they hit the back of your head too. Yeah, they're <laughs> they don't they don't call them pebbles for nothing, man. Boom. <laughs> you got to be careful who you're fishing with. Yeah, exactly. All right, guys, this is uh this is a segment that we we kind of teased a little bit last uh, last show. And uh, what I've done is I've asked everybody to bring a book. And I know a couple of the guys have a pile of books, so I'm wondering which one they're going to actually pull out. Uh, and the, the the theme is a book that influenced your Tinkara fishing that is not specifically about Tinkara fishing. And just to get things started, I'll, I'll start out. Uh, my book is Active Nymphing, Aggressive Strategies for Casting, Rating, and Moving Nymphs by Rich Ostoff. You see this one here? It's getting through the uh, special effects there. 
we'll we'll put links up to these books in the uh, in the info for the video and all that. But uh, this book really had a big impact on my fishing. Uh, in uh, it really just the way I uh, approach and size up and and fish the water, and uh, he really goes over a lot of. Uh, Man, it really sums it up in the in the title about like when to move the nymph and why, and and then gets into how he works a lot with depths of the water column and using the uh, current to get the nymph in place, being able to drop it quickly or slowly depending on how he's working it. And uh, one thing that really struck uh, struck me when I first read it was he was talking about pacing and. Uh, how he doesn't really spend a lot of time on, on any particular bit of water. And uh, that really kind of spoke to me, like, you know, I'll, I'll move through a, a piece of water and I'll put, like, you know, what I think is a decent amount of of uh, casts through there. But if I'm not getting them on the first or second hit to a target zone, I'm probably not going to stick around and, and nail that fish. The interesting thing, of course, about, uh, about this, uh, about his style uh, and why I think it speaks so clearly to me is that he is uh, a, an angler that came up in the Driftless, uh, and then the Rockies are kind of his secondary fishery, uh, but he spent a lot of time on the Spring Creeks. Uh, so it really had a, a, a really positive effect uh, for me on imagining how the fly moves through the water and how to move and con control the fly uh, through the water. Uh, so that's that's mine. and. Uh, We'll uh, we'll go to Mike for the first one. Sure. So I'm going to do my book my my book report. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know if this book is even still available to purchase. I probably should have looked it up on on Amazon or something like that because the copy I have is from 2010, but it's called Fish Like a Guide, and it's written by George Douglas. And okay. George George Douglas is. I, I, he's a fishing guide, obviously. He used to be the owner and editor of a magazine called Kipe Magazine, like the the lower jaw of a of a trout or a steelhead or whatever. And I don't even think he's necessarily like a fly fishing guide. I think he was just like an angler. But the book is great, and I picked this up, you know, kind of like when I was getting into fishing, like fly fishing in general. Um, and it's just a really great kind of primer if you are coming in kind of off the street on how to attack basically every bit of fishing scenario um, without being overkill. Like it's not a, a total book on, you know, reading the water. It's like four or five paragraphs about reading the water. And it goes into a whole bunch of different scenarios where if you're a newbie and I'll be honest with you, this influenced this book influenced my fishing, not just my tank car fishing, but obviously there's a lot of carryover to it. You know, I found it invaluable just because it's so easy to consume. It's only about, I don't know, a hundred and so pages and it's big type with lots of pictures. So like, it's not going to take you that long to read, but you know, it's a, it's a really, it's a really good book. I, I'm trying to find there's probably a passage in here, just as an example, I could probably read just to kind of show you like what I'm talking about. But um, you know, it, it, it just breaks down things, you know, kind of very, very simple, um, you know, for somebody who's picking up fishing, Tankara fly fishing doesn't even matter, you know, what it is. Like one of the little passages in here is like, you know, don't chase a splashing fish, right? Like you should have a plan when you hit the water 
and you know, usually you might be fishing an area of the water and you might see maybe 30 yards up ahead of you a rise or something like that. And as a new angler, you might just kind of run up to go cast to that fish and kind of spook all that water in between, you know, the place you were fishing and where that fish is rising. And it was just like a little tip that was just like an aha, because I was that guy. I would see a fish rise and I'd either hop out of the stream or, you know, go up to it and try to catch it. And it's not saying you shouldn't fish to rising fish. It's just saying, you know, have a plan when you hit the water and stick to it because that fish will still be there when you do get, you know, 30 feet or yards or whatever it is upstream. So I really like this book a lot. It's called, again, it's called um, Fish Like a Guide um, by by George Douglas Fly Fishing. Uh, there it is. Tom, what you got? I'm not, I'm not sure whether this... Uh book is still in print or not um i it's copyright is 1995 and i got it back when i was um a resident in oregon um and it's called presentation by Carrie, gary borger and uh um it's a big book it's it's a big read um but it uh, it is one of the um books that transformed my fishing um i was i have been tying flies since the early 1970s but i never really fly fished and um and once i got out of southern california from medical school and up into oregon then i decided to start fly fishing and uh, i needed to learn about it and i you know i read magazines and and uh, things like that but this book the way he writes it, it's sort of a mixture between technique and um, essay, if you will. Um, he'll explain a certain situation, and then he talks about what worked for him, and and he goes into some instruction. Anyway, I found it found it really well written. It's um, very well illustrated. Nothing fancy. They're all line drawings by by his um, by his son, Jason. I don't know if you can see this um, picture here, this illustration, but way back when I was learning fly fishing, um, I had a hard time with the standard um, holding the hammer grip with the thumb forward. It just never really worked for me. I tried Joan Wolf's techniques and her little wrist, you know, hold it still, gar, you know, whatever that thing is to keep you from flipping your wrist. And I never really could cast without getting a tailing loop in my tippet and tying wind knots and all this stuff. I, but then I was reading one day and I came across, and here he's showing using the finger forward grip. And I never had, up to that point, I'd never seen a Western fly fisherman actually use that particular grip. He calls it a tripod grip or so he's got some name for it. And uh, I, I immediately switched over, and and it worked for me. And uh, a lot of the things in there um, I still use today, even though uh, obviously none of this book is about ten cars. So if you can find it, yeah, I don't know whether it's available or not new, but certainly used. It's a, it's a great read. It's a really good book written by somebody who knows what he's talking about. Very cool. What you got for us, Anthony? Well, I'm going to, I have to, um, uh, cop out a little bit and, and, um, go outside of fishing, I guess. So, so one of my favorite books of all time is High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. 
uh, which was, you know, about the record store owner in, in England, the book was, and it was then made a movie by it with John Cusack as the owner of the record store. And uh, the reason that this informs all of my Tankara fishing is that um, in that book, Rob, the owner, he, he realizes at one point that he has been what he calls a professional appreciator. And he decides he wants to like do something and put something into the world. So that book is why I started my blog. I had been thinking about it, but that got me off mm -hmm. my butt to like do something and not just, you know, be a, a appreciator. Um, so, and I, I really think if I hadn't started that, you know, blog casting around and met people like Mike and Carell and, you know, Jason class and all these people in those early days, um, I wouldn't be here now. You know, I, I may not have ever taken up Tankar. It was really kind of got me into that whole thing. So, so really at any one book is responsible for, for my tank car, you know, experience. It's that book, um, which I love one of probably one of the only books I've laughed out loud reading. And, the, and I like the movie too. I think usually you say the book I was looking to, I was trying to find a shirt that said the book is better to wear, <laughs> but like, I actually think the movie, the book is better, but the movie was pretty good. So that's my non fishing thing. So I will, I will give you some fishing stuff too. So, my uh, fishing book thing is, is also kind of uh, not one book, but it's a kind of book. So this is um, Pennsylvania Trout Streams and Their Hatches by Charles Meck. So when I started fishing in, this is 1993. So when I started fishing in 92 or whatever it was, I mean, this is pre-internet. So like, you know, I didn't have any fly fishing friends. I didn't have any groups to go to. So the only way I could find places to fish was in books like this. And I mean, me and my father, I was at Penn State at the time. And we, we've gone, to, we didn't go to every stream in here. We went to like a lot of them and all, like every region of the state. And, um, and before that, you know, I always, I would spin fish and stuff, but I wasn't, I didn't really think about like wild fish and like stream, you know, like what that meant to have fish reproducing and things like that. You know, so when we got this, we start. I started reading. And I realized, oh, there's stock streams and there's streams with wild fish, and so then we started like, well, let's. You know, we kind of became wild fish snobs, right? We wanted only wild fish, and we wanted to go to those places. Um, so without without books like this back then, I mean, it was hard. And we found out like fly shops, they were pretty tight lipped. I don't know what your guys' experiences are, but like they would give you like the one popular spot, but they weren't giving out a lot. So right. some people complain about these books that like they're spot burning or something, but. But I really think like the more streams more people know about, the less people are any particular stream. You know, it spreads people mm -hmm. out. Maybe someone finds about your secret little stream. But I mean, in Pennsylvania, I fished. If I go to fish wild brook trout streams, I fished for five years straight in the Laurel Highlands. I came across another angler one time on wild brook trout streams. So I don't think they're, you know, it's causing flocks of people to go to those streams. But anyway, so that's, you know, these books and books like it. Um, uh, so there's that one that this, this Dwight Landis book was another one. Uh, that, I have that one. Yeah, that, one, that was a good mm -hmm. one. I met, I met this. He actually lived uh, over this way. So I met him a couple of times. Um, the other, just to be a little more current, this book right here is kind of like the current one. If you're a Pennsylvania angler, this Keystone uh, fly fishing book is a great book. And it's uh, it goes through all the different regions. And then the, the author taps into all different anglers in those regions. So it's not just one person. You know, if he's in central PA, he's talking to like uh, George, you know, Daniels and people like that. So anyway, 
guidebooks, you know, um, and, and even now, like you can get online, sure, and you can find stuff, but like I still, I bought two copies of this so I could have one at home and one at my other place, and one I'm just like thinking about where I should go, like you know, I'm always finding new places to explore. So my book really is for guidebooks like that. Very cool. Right. Well, thanks for sharing the uh, the book reports, guys. I appreciate that, and that's uh, that's all I have tonight. Uh, to hand it back over to uh, the boss here. The boss. Um, all right. So um, I think that's mostly it. I did want to do a little bit of housekeeping before we uh, we ended the podcast. Kind of, um, you know, some current events that aren't related to the events that we kind of mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. Um, first off, I wanted to remind everybody um, that we're currently giving away um, a Tenkara USA Amago rod um, on Tenkara Angler. Um, all you need to do is go to our website, find the, find the post, and interact with some of our content. And then we'll be pulling um, a winner at random on February 2nd. So, you know, if you're looking for a, a big fish rod, a brand new big fish rod, that rod has never been fished. Um, it's only been measured. Um, and it's the same model that we gifted to our Japanese angler um, visitors that came over from, from obviously from Japan to fish with us out in Colorado. Um, it, it's a, it's a really solid rod has a good pedigree of catching a lot of big fish and it, and it can be yours. Um, if you enter the contest, like I said, we're going to pull, pull a name at random on February 2nd. So depending on when you're listening to this, you probably have, you know, a week or two um, to still enter. And then last but not least, um, just as we were kind of getting on to do this podcast, I saw an announcement on Facebook that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, Jeff Lamino um, of Riverworks Rod Company, um, he's one of those guys that specializes in making all kinds of different and unique fixed line fly fishing rods. Um, his probably his most popular is the ZX4 Pro, which he kind of co-designed with Rob Worthing. It's, a, it's an excellent tactical nymphing rod. Um, but one of the services that he offers is basically an Oni grip or handle conversion um, service. So what he'll do is he'll take your Oni type one, three, two, whatever it is, and replace it with his carbon fiber grip. Um, and that's something that he's been offering for about the last year. Um, but he announced that he's basically going to wind down that part of his business. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure necessarily what the reasoning is, but if it's something that you've ever been interested in, um, he's going to, I guess, stop taking orders for that um, around February 15th. In addition to getting your Oni, you know, regrip with a carbon fiber grip, he also does a couple other Japanese brands. He'll do um, a red fiberglass grip on a, a Tenryu rod, as well as a, I think it's a mix of a carbon fiber and fiberglass grip on the River Peak Kiwami rods. Um, so just wanted to kind of give a shout out for that. I know a lot of people have asked me about my Oni Type 3 when they've seen that handle or grip on it. I know Matt fishes a 395 that he has a carbon fiber grip on um, conversion as well. So if it's something that interests you, you know, check over to riverworksrodco.com before um, the 15th. And it's something that you can obviously learn a little bit more about. And um, if you're interested, you know, place an order with Jeff. So those are my two little commercials before we cut out. Is there anything else any of you guys wanted to go over or say before we call it a podcast? No, I'm good. Oh, my God, Chief. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys uh, joining us tonight. And, um, you know, like I said, we'll talk to you all soon. Bye, Bye folks. Yeah.